trust in the Lord will make everything known to you. And I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and the love of the saints from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Tychicus delivered both this letter and the letter to the Colossians and the letter to Philemon. His mission here was to give the Ephesian Christians further information about Paul and to comfort them and to encourage them. Tychicus is an interesting fellow. It appears as though he and Paul were pretty close friends as well as co-workers in the gospel. But he's one of the men who accompanied Paul at least on the first part of his journey back to Jerusalem, although it's probable that Tychicus didn't go all the way to Jerusalem with Paul. He probably stopped in Ephesus. It's also probable that Tychicus was from Ephesus, so it makes sense as to why he might have stopped there. Most also believe that he was one of the two brethren with Trophimus who accompanied Titus. When Titus delivered Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 through 24, Paul mentions Tychicus twice in his later letters, first sending him to Crete with Titus, and later mentioning him to Timothy, that he had sent Tychicus to Ephesus so that he was no longer with him. That's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Tychicus is one of those quiet heroes of the faith who works behind the scenes in a critical, supportive role. If you've got that kind of role, I want you to know that God knows everything that you need. You may not have a plaque that's placed on the wall or give a, a gold watch or any kind of public accolade. God knows exactly what he's called you to do, whether it's a public or a private supportive role, and he will take care of blessing you for that role. Thank you very much. So we don't have to we don't have to worry, we don't have to strive for public roles if God has us called to a private role. So Tychicus, I think, is one of these behind the behind the scenes kind of guys, one of the quiet heroes of the faith. And so ends Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us. Paul's in prison, of course. And so he wants to answer some of the questions that his beloved Ephesian brothers have of him. This makes perfect sense. He concludes in verse 23, Peace to the brethren with love and faith. This, the idea of peace is the Hebrew term shalom, Greek term irene. Remember, we'll talk about it in just a moment when we go through our overview of the book of Ephesians. There's this problem in Ephesus between Jew and Gentile. He actually brings a Jewish salutation in here as well as a more of a Greek salutation, but peace to the brethren, love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, he finishes as he began with the idea of grace. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Paul's letter to the Ephesians was written from Rome during his first imprisonment there, probably between the years 60 and 62 A.D. Paul first visited Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey in the fall of 52 A.D. He stayed there a very short period of time, perhaps as little as a week, maybe as much as a month, but probably more like a week. But even though he stayed there a short time, he developed a very serious bond with the Ephesian people. And he promised them, Lord willing, that he would return again someday to Ephesus. That Sunday happened approximately a year later. In the fall of 53 A.D., 
during Paul's third missionary journey. This time, he doesn't just stay a week or a month. This time, he stays two and a half years and ministers to them through many trials, according to Paul, through many trials and tribulations, publicly from house to house. And in Paul's words, he taught them the whole purpose or the whole counsel of God. One of the ministries that I love so much is the radio ministry. Xavier McGee is long dead, but I love his radio ministry, don't you? One of the reasons I love Dr. McGee's ministry is not because of that quirky voice that he had or his incredible sense of humor, which he certainly did, uh, or some of the stories that he tells which were great. I love his ministry because he, he was committed to teach from Genesis to Revelation the whole time. When you do that, you don't have to worry about balance in your ministry. If you teach from Genesis to Revelation, sooner or later you're going to hit everything and you're going to hit it with a balance. So Paul tells them, and he reminds them in these two and a half years that he has taught them the whole purpose of God. The intensity of the bond that he has with these people is seen a little later in his farewell address to the Ephesian elders that we studied in Acts chapter 20. It was given on his way to Jerusalem in the spring of 57. At that time, you remember there was a very emotional scene where they all wept, and he told them that they would see his face no more. What he meant there was not that they wouldn't see him in heaven. Of course they would. But what he meant was this was likely the last time that they would see him on this earth. The letter to the Ephesians, which we have just, we are in the process tonight of completing our study, this letter to the Ephesians was the next contact that Paul had with the Ephesian church after that emotional farewell to the Ephesian elders. The point of the introduction here is that Paul knew these people very well. He was acquainted with their strengths, and he was acquainted with their weaknesses, and we should remember that most of what they knew came from Paul himself, through the Holy Spirit, from Paul himself. To give you kind of an idea of where Paul's letter to the Ephesians stands with regard to the other letters that he wrote, before he writes Ephesians, Paul writes Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Romans. At the same time that he writes his letter to the Ephesians, he writes Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And as we just said as we concluded the letter, Tychicus brought three of those four letters to the recipients. He brings Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. After Paul writes Ephesians, he only writes three more letters. First and Second Timothy and Titus. Actually, First Timothy, Titus, and Second Timothy, in that order. He writes Ephesus. He writes the letter to the Ephesians, approximately six to seven years before he dies. And Paul died at approximately sixty-eight years old, and that's a pretty good guess. When he's writing his letter to the Ephesians, somewhere between the time say he's sixty and sixty-two years old. It, Ephesus was an interesting city. Most ancient historians would agree that Ephesus was probably the, the third most important city in the world at the time, or the third, third most significant city in the world at the time, taking everything into consideration behind Rome and Athens. Ephesus was a large city, a great cultural city. Uh, the, the city of Ephesus had approximately 250,000 people in it at the time that Paul wrote. Granted, census figures, population figures, are are notoriously difficult to determine with certainty in the ancient world. 
but 250,000 was a big city back then. Rome at the same time probably had about a million people to put things in perspective. Jerusalem at the same time likely had about 40,000. So Jerusalem 40,000, Ephesus 250,000, Rome a million. So you see kind of where Ephesus fits in. It was the center of a lot of architectural, maybe rather significant architectural structures. They had an amphitheater there that held 24,000 people. An amphitheater that held 24,000 people. That's more than the Toyota Center, as far as I know, that were held. And that's not an amphitheater. They also had the Temple of Artemis that was there. And this temple is, is a center of worship. So, Ephesus is a very cosmopolitan place. It's not just a backwoods country place like, say, Colossae would have been more like that. But Ephesus is a going concern. It would be something like a New York City in the sense that it was the center of commerce, it was the center of trade, it was the center of learning, and it was also a center of religious activity. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is structured a lot like Paul's other letters. It has a doctrinal section and an applicational section. The doctrinal section runs from chapters 1 through 3. The applicational section runs from chapters 4 through 6. The first three chapters are heavy, heavily theological or doctrinal, if you prefer. The final three chapters are essentially applicational in nature. Paul, listen carefully, Paul knew nothing of learning theology without a public. That was not even on his radar. If you learn it, it should be applied. Otherwise, Paul, just like James, felt that you were wasting your time learning theology if there was no intention of applying it. Learning and application go hand in hand in a believer's relationship with God, a believer's growing relationship with God. If you're going to grow, there must be knowledge and application of that knowledge. Knowing without doing does no good. It doesn't get it done when it comes to a maturing relationship with Jesus Christ. In the first three chapters, the two key ideas are love and unity. In the, second, in the second three chapters, the key word is going to be walk, which is a synonym Paul uses oftentimes for the idea of uh, of application of theology. As with most ancient letters, Paul introduces himself first, and he, he addresses this letter to the Ephesians. There are some ancient manuscripts that don't have the phrase to the Ephesians or to the believers at Ephesus in the original manuscript which led some people to believe that this was a letter that was intended to be circulated a lot of different places. You know how sometimes you'll get in the mail a, a torn letter, and then it'll be dear, and then there'll be a blank, and somebody writes in, dear Judy, or dear Charlotte, or dear Luana. Well, it's possible that the letter to the, to the Ephesians was like that. It doesn't mean it's any less important. But we think that it went to the Ephesians first, and then, of course, was intended to be read by a larger audience. The, the book begins, or the letter begins, after Paul's initial greeting and introduction of himself. And again, I apologize for those who cannot see that in the back, uh, but, but I'll be going over all this verbally. Paul's letter begins in chapter 1, after his introduction, with a long sentence, verses 3 through 14, which says, in essence, God is worthy to be praised. 
as Paul begins this letter, he outlines the many things that God has done for us that makes him worthy to be praised. He elected us, or he chose us in eternity past. He has graciously redeemed us, and he's given us an inheritance, which Paul tells us is secured by means of the Holy Spirit. There was one phrase there that happened over and over again, which was the key phrase in these first, or in verses 3 through 14, and that is, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. The remainder of chapter 1 is a prayer. A prayer for wisdom and a prayer for revelation. So in chapter 1, there's an introduction in the first two verses. Verses 3 through 14, we spent a lot of time studying those verses, but the key idea is whether he elected us, he graciously redeemed us, and he gave us an inheritance, and the idea is that God is worthy to be praised. To the praise of his glory, he prays. And then finally, at the end of chapter 1, there's a prayer, a wonderful prayer for wisdom and revelation. When we got to chapter 2, Paul opened up a new idea, and that was our position in Christ. Our position in Christ, our family position in Christ. He speaks in the first half of the chapter about our position in Christ individually. And then he speaks in the second half of the chapter about our position in Christ corporately. But in chapter 2, that we start to get to the meat of the idea as to why Paul writes this letter. He's writing this letter so that the, the church at large might be unified. There were a lot of racial tensions in Ephesus in the first century church. And it's, and it's very important that we look at it from their perspective going forward, not so much from our perspective going backward. If we look at the, the idea of the Jew and Gentile racial tension from our perspective going backward, we might be tempted to think that Paul is, is primarily getting after the Gentiles for being anti-Semitic. Because in the last several hundred years, that's been the problem, hasn't it? That wasn't the problem in the first century. Looking at it from the other direction, he's actually getting after the Jews more for not accepting the Gentiles into the body of Christ as equal members. Christianity is by and large begun by Jews. Our Lord was a Jew, Paul was a Jew, Peter's a Jew, the apostles were Jew, Luke, Luke was, was not, but but by and large Christianity is the is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. Well, the Jews had this idea that they're the people of God, and they're right about that. And there, but there were always tensions. Well, what, how are we going to accept these people? What are they going to have to do to get in? Because from, from their perspective, back then looking at it from their perspective, these Gentiles, these heathens, well, they can come on in, but surely we've got to require something from them. We've been following this Mosaic law for all this time. They should have to do something, too. So one of the things that Paul or the others stress, not Paul, but others stress, was, well, at least let's make them be circumcised. They've got to follow something. At least let's make them be circumcised. And Paul says, say, no, wait a minute. You're not under the law. Jews and Gentiles are equal members of the body of Christ. Now, that had to really be a humbling thing for the Jew of the day in Ephesus. You mean they're equal in the body with me. But you know what? I wonder sometimes if it's not a humbling thing for us to say it. I listen to people talk all over in my country, which I love deeply. But I hear them talk about Christians in other parts of the world almost as if they were second-class Christians. Because we, after all, we know a whole lot more than you do, don't we? We have some of the finest seminaries in the world here. You know, and our head kind of gets bigger and bigger. And so, hey, they can be in the body of Christ. 
Hopefully by the time we get to eternity, it will be proven that they were second class Christians. You see a little bit, just a tiny bit, and perhaps you've never thought that way because it just doesn't work for you. But when you're in the body of Christ, by grace through faith, you are an equal member in the body. There are no second class people in the body of Christ. Now, there are people that, that choose to obey Christ and grow, and there are people that choose to disobey Christ and not grow, but that's how it's all talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. Everyone is an equal member of the body of Christ. He speaks of our position in Christ individually. Remember those passages where he talks about grace, salvation beyond grace, through faith apart from works? Sometimes several years ago, some, some very, very kind Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door, and they were doing their best to evangelize me, so I decided I'd return the favor and do my best to evangelize them without any kind of ugliness or fussing or fighting. And I, was, I finally got to the point, I said, what do you think you need to do to be rightly related to God? So he turned to James chapter 2, verse 15, interesting place to start because they're already acknowledging that faith must be part of it. I said, so what do you what do you mean by that? He said, well, certainly we need to have faith because we need that that's what I probably needed. So, but we have to have works too. Yeah, we did. I said, well, how about this? I said, do you think there are any contradictions in the word faith? So we're going to turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith as a gift of God, not of works. Sat down and said, Well, how can we work those two passages? Salvation is by grace through faith, apart from works, whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile. That's Paul's point there. Now, since there's not a huge problem between, I guess there is in some that have been certain parts of history, but it's a boring one. It happens. But let's assume, maybe for the sake of argument for just a moment, that right now at this moment there's not a huge problem between Christian members of the body of Christ and Jewish members of the body of Christ. But there are still latent racial overtones in the body of Christ. Negative racial overtones. Working skin color doesn't matter to God with regard to his church. Person's gender doesn't matter. A person's socioeconomic status doesn't matter. That's one of the ways we can apply Paul's letter to the Ephesians today. There are no distinctions between Jew and Gentile. There are no racial distinctions. But we'll also see, or we saw in Paul's letter to the Galatians, there are no gender distinctions and there are no social demographics. We're all part of the Christ. Therefore, there should be some kind of unity. And that's what he's calling to today. So in chapter 2, we, Paul talks about our position in the body of Christ individually and then corporately. Oh, and then in chapter 3, he comes right out and says, he speaks of this mystery. And in chapter 3, the mystery is, now this is Sherlock Holmes style, like, not like a whodunit, but the mystery, which was unknown in ages past, but is now being revealed, is this. Jews and Gentiles are equal members of the body of Christ. Can we equal inheritance? And that, while today we look back on it and say, well, yeah, that's right. Back then, that was a radical idea. An absolutely radical idea. That's the mystery about which Paul speaks. After Paul goes through the idea of the mystery, he gives 
second of these great prayers that he has in his letter to the Ephesians. And finally, he concludes in chapter 3 with this doxology. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we could ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church, in Jesus Christ, to all generations forever and ever. He's just expounded this incredible theology. All these things God has done for us in chapter 1. Our position in Christ in chapter 2 and how we got there by grace through faith. Then in chapter 3, he comes right out with the point he talks about Jew and Gentile being equal members of the body of Christ. And he's so excited that he gives, that he writes under the ministry of the Holy Spirit in chapter 3, verse 20, some of the most powerful words in all of the Word of God. Listen to him again. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Listen, I can think about a lot. And I can ask him for a lot. But you know what? He's able to do way beyond anything I can even think. Have you ever pondered that for a moment? Think about heaven for just a minute. Just for a brief second. Think about how wonderful it's going to be. And then, in, in some abstract way, we can multiply that times a million, times a billion. It'll be, more, it'll be better than even that. Far beyond anything you can imagine. All of those loved ones that are in heaven right now. And we think, well, they're in a place of no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. And we're happy about that. But it doesn't just stop there. Whatever it is, and, and granted, the Bible's revelation about heaven is limited compared to other things. I guess God figures once we get there, then we're going to enjoy the full orb. But right now we couldn't enjoy it anyway because our minds are so limited by their finiteness. But heaven is going to be so much better, so much better than anything we could ever imagine. Now that's true of eternity. But guess what? God can also do in the here and now so much more than we care to ask Him for. Our prayers are, are, we're not asking God for too much. We're asking God for too little. I'm not trying to be one of these television preachers that I heard on the earlier this week that said, I don't know where they got the figure $8,500. I'm not joking. You send in $8,500 and your life is going to get right. That's what the guy said. We'll pray for it. We'll do it For $8,500, you're going to bribe God and God's going to send you $850,000 back? No, that's not what Paul's talking about. It's not a bribe, but we don't we don't do enough with our relationship with God, Paul says. We need to do so much more. So he ends the application section of the book with this incredible doxology. I'm so glad he did. It gives us a little hint into the mind of the, the Apostle Paul and the love that he had for God and the enthusiasm that he finishes these first three chapters with. Now keep that in mind. Because that enthusiasm is going to carry over into the last three chapters where he tells us, Okay, I'm glad you're happy. I'm glad you're all pumped up and you're jacked up. Because guess what? Now you need to do something about it. Now you need to apply it. You say, whoa, whoa, hold on just a minute. I liked it when you were just as pumped up and happy and jumping up and down. Well, that's not the point. The point is all these wonderful things have been done for us. Now we have a responsibility. And Paul uses the key term, peripateo. It means to walk. Now, walking should be putting one foot in front of the other. It was used of that way. Jesus and the disciples, the two unnamed disciples, walked to Emmaus. But most of the time when the term walk is used in the New Testament, it's, a, it's metaphorical walk. We even use that today sometimes when we're in Christian circles. And by the way, we need to be careful about this. Because sometimes as we're speaking to people that aren't familiar with Christian terminology, we sound like we're aliens of some sort. 
But we even talk about how you walk. You know, well, my walk has been this. I need to, I need, need to pray about so-and-so's walk with the Lord. And what we mean is that their life as they live it before the God of the universe. But Paul uses the term peripateo of the idea of walking. When he gets to chapter 4, when he gets to chapter 4, he begins the application section, the key idea being walk. And Paul will tell us in, in the first part of chapter 4 that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. By the way, going back to the first section, because there's going to be a lot to come up in the second section, Paul will make the, the idea in principle. We'll talk about the idea of love in principle in the first three sections. There's a theology of love, isn't there? But he's also going to talk in these last three chapters about the application of the theology of love. And I don't want to cut that, make that point too fine. But what he will say, and this is one of the overlays for the entire epistle, that genuine unity, he wants Jews and Gentiles both to be in, in unity in the body of Christ, both to love one another, but genuine unity can't be forced. You can't take two people that don't like each other in a room and you like each other. It's not going to work. Each side has to genuinely love the other person. This little picture that I have right here is, is interesting. There's a bigger brother and a little brother. In, in this situation, the Jewish person would be represented in, in Ephesus in the first century by the bigger brother that's got his arm around the other, welcoming him into the body of Christ. Again, in today's culture, it may not be that way so much with Jew and Gentile, but, and it may not be that way with regard to Gentile, but maybe it's that way with regard to socioeconomic status. Do we welcome people of all socioeconomic classes? So it may not be race, but there are other ways that we can discriminate against people within the body of Christ. And that genuine spirit that must happen then. So genuine unity is going to start with that. Now, in the second half of this book, the major idea is walking. And Paul begins with the command that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. It's not surprising that he starts there because he spent almost the whole first chapter telling us all the wonderful things that have been done for us. He spends most of the second chapter telling us that we are recipient of these wonderful things by grace and faith and no merit of our own. So now he's saying, listen, I'm going to set the standard for your Christian walk, for your life, your relationship before God, and it's not down here. It's not a standard of mediocrity. It's a standard of greatness. Do you remember the movie Amadeus, the one best picture, like maybe back in 
Paul begins by saying we need to walk in a manner, we need to live our lives in a manner that's worthy of this calling. God was setting the bar really, really high to begin with. And then he said, and then he goes to the negative. This is what we're supposed to do. Let's don't do this. So don't live your lives walking or living as the Gentiles walk. Now he's using the Gentiles there differently. He's not talking about Gentile believers. He's talking about people outside of the Christian community that lived in Ephesus, that were involved in this temple, this pagan temple worship. A lot of which had to do with drunkenness and ecstasy. So that's not the Christian way of life. Don't do it the way they did. The Christian church has done that too much for them. We have in an effort to get it to cast a wide net so we gather as many people as we can in. We have incorporated too much of the world into the church. So that in some cases, the church doesn't look any different from the world at all. And people will come into a church and say, I like that church because you know what? They don't require anything of me. I don't have to change a thing. And I can feel perfectly comfortable there. Well, you know what? There are some things that, that we might be doing or that somebody comes to the church that might be part of their lifestyle that I hope after several times of visiting the church, they do feel uncomfortable. Not with the other people at the church, but with themselves. And perhaps they don't need to be shacking up with their girlfriend. No, perhaps they don't need to be doing drugs or whatever it is. And I just picked the biggest. You can fill in the blanks with some of the more common things. So don't walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And then in chapter 5, he gets back to the idea of love. Remember, in the first three chapters, he talked about love in terms of principle. Now he's going to be speaking of love in terms of application. We are to walk or we're to live a lifestyle that's characterized by love. And love is me willing the highest and the best for you. Love isn't emotion. Now, they never take that away. I think that, that divorces the word from its meaning in any language that I'm aware of. But love has an emotional component, but it also has a, a volitional component. And Paul is telling us we actually need to choose to will the highest and the best for someone else. We're also to walk as children of life, we find out in chapter 5. And then finally, we are to walk wisely. This was a section that we spent some significant time on. It's in this section that we have that very famous verse, perhaps the most famous verse in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where he says, And don't get drunk with wine, which is dissipation, which means it's a waste of life but be filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. He didn't pull that wine metaphor just out of a hat. There were people in Ephesus that were outside the Christian community that maintained or attained and maintained their own spirituality by virtue of the excessive use of wine. So Paul's saying, don't do that. That's not spirituality when you're talking about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Our relationship to God, with God through Jesus Christ is not empowered by alcohol. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Be filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. And then when we move further into the book, in chapter 6, as we get past the first nine verses, which are carryover from chapter 5, we studied recently this whole idea of taking our stand here. So Paul has told us, that we need to walk worthy of the manner in which we were called, not as the Gentiles walk. We need to walk in love, light, and we need to walk wisely. Oh, that's great. I think I've got it all down. When do we start? And then Paul says, well, listen, there's one thing I need to, I didn't tell you before, and I'm going to tell you at the end of the letter now. Perhaps you saved it to the end of the letter for you, but it's very, very important. And that is, guess what? Let's pick up the action. 
says Satan, the enemy, who Peter called a roaring lion, Paul describes him elsewhere as an angel of light, so he's very tricky, he's very deceptive. He doesn't want you to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called. He doesn't want you to live at a higher standard than the pagan Gentiles did. He doesn't want you to live a lifestyle that's characterized by life, which is revelation, by love and by living wisely under the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit. He would love to see you fail. So over the last several weeks, we've studied this whole idea of the armor of God and the provision that God has made for us to fight a defenseless fight in this, in this whole battle of the heavenlies. This is sobering to know that there is opposition. There are angelic beings that would love to see you fail. But Paul takes this in a very real and a very balanced way. C.S. Lewis wrote this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the death of Jesus. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves may be perceived as they appear. Now he's stressing the idea of balance. Balance. They are a formidable foe. By ourselves, we cannot defeat Satan. By ourselves, we cannot walk worthy in a worthy manner. We will not walk in a higher manner than the Gentiles walk. We will not walk in love, light, and wisdom by ourselves. We can't do it. We will, we will be toast. We will be defeated if we do it by ourselves. But if God is for us, who's going to be against us? If God's on our side, spiritual battles cannot be lost. If God's not on our side, if we try to do it by ourselves in our own empowerment, the spiritual battle cannot be lost. So it's our choice. Are we going to do it God's way under His empowerment and win, or are we going to try to do it ourselves and lose? The armor, as we've studied over the last several weeks, the whole idea of the helmet, the sword, and the shield, and the breastplate, and the belt, and the sandals. Sometimes we get too wrapped up in the armor itself, and we lose the beauty of what the armor represents. These are the things that we need to focus on. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. These are the things. When we put them on, when we utilize the divine assets that he's given us, to win this fight, then all the things that we talked about in the first three chapters that need to be applied as per the second three chapters, that's going to happen. And we're going to live lives that glorify Jesus. Bill Bach, who's one of Bill Johnson's colleagues at Dallas Theological Seminary, said this in summarizing Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He said, Ephesians is ultimately about how God has powerfully equipped the church to experience blessing in Christ by creating a new community that is able to honor God and to resist the forces of evil. No longer does one's Jewish or Gentile identity dominate. They are part of a new, reconciled community, a reconciliation that involves not only God, but also being reconciled to one another. All enablement in this new, second community is rooted in what the exalted Christ has provided for its people. That's why believers can have hope since they have begun participation in a wealth of benefits distributed from heaven. And then Dr. Bach closes, the church's members are citizens raised and seated with Jesus in a heavenly citizenship, though they represent him now as light on the earth. 
fully enabled to pay. All of this, God is taking steps toward the ultimate summation of all things in Christ. To summarize Paul's letter to the Ephesians in one sentence, the church is part of God's eternal plan and it grows as a result of God's power working through believers' lives overcoming 